This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. The subcultures in which we participate as youths can have a lifelong impact on the ways we see the world. Whether it's music, art, sports, gaming, photography, or so many other activities, the people we surround ourselves with at a young age become tiny communities the world over and help us find a place where we feel accepted, appreciated, and loved. For me, that was the punk scene in St. Louis, Missouri, And no matter where I move as an adult, those early formative years gave me a framework for communities of people that I have sought out in each new place I've lived over the years. Learning about punk scenes has been a tangential interest of mine for a long time, and my guest on this episode, Dr. Edward Avery Natal, had a similar experience from his years involved in the Philadelphia punk scene. Dr. Avery Natal is a sociology professor and author of the book Ethics, Politics, and Anarcho-Punk Identifications, Punk and Anarchy in Philadelphia. In this conversation, we discuss what the term anarcho-punk means, the importance of self-identification, and the gray area of how to put ethics into action in a highly charged capitalist society. If you are looking for a copy of this book, Edward has a few copies and would love to hear from you. It's a really great read for scholars and curious people alike who are interested in sociology, subculture, and music. So without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Edward Avery Natal. Dr. Edward Avery Natal, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm uh, excited to have you here, um, Edward, and to talk about some of your work. And I'm wondering if you can spend a moment and introduce yourself to the audience, however you see fit. Sure. Uh, My name, again, is Dr. Edward Avery Natal. I am a professor of sociology at Mercer County Community College in New Jersey. Uh, I live in West Philadelphia. I got my PhD from Temple University, where I studied, uh, amongst other things, uh, I did a dissertation on the punk rock scene in Philadelphia, focusing on the anarchist elements of punk and the uh, you know political elements of punk, which eventually led to the book we'll be talking about today. Wonderful. I'm always curious about people's academic journeys and the trajectory that they find themselves on to, you know wind up becoming a specialist in one particular area because those stories always have super interesting uh, turning points within lives. And I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about, you know, go back as far as you need to, to sort of trace the turning points and trajectory of your own life to wind up being a specialist in, you know, ethics, politics, anarcho-punk, et cetera. I'm just curious about that journey for you. Yeah, I'd say unbeknownst to me at the time that started really in high school. Um, At the time, I didn't know that I would end up wanting to be an academic or anything like that. I didn't even really have a sense of what that would have meant. 
uh, both my parents are not college graduates and there were not many people in my life who could have told me about what academia was like. So I didn't have a sense of what academia would be like yet. But when I was in high school, and I started getting interested in things like politics and social justice issues um, and started thinking broadly about the world and about issues that I guess we could call philosophical questions of the existence of God and so forth. Um, I was one of the few kids in my high school thinking about those sort of big ideas and big issues. And a lot of that came to me from punk rock. Yeah, I got into punk rock when I was about 15 years old um, and for those of your listeners who aren't familiar with punk, these are questions that would be pretty naturally raised to anyone listening mm -hmm. to a lot of, especially underground punk rock music. Yeah. Um, and so I was the kind of person who read a lot, you know, I was the kind of person who at some point in high school read the communist manifesto and mm -hmm. stuff like that. But I didn't at that point have any sense that those things connected to anything academic or anything that could be a job. Ultimately. Mm -hmm. So when I got to college, uh, I went to Bloomsburg University out in central PA. It's just a state college. And at the time, my intention was to major in computer science. Uh, I was good with computers. My friends were doing computer science. It seemed to lead naturally to a job, which is what in my world education was for at the time. I was mean, right. very critical. I'm now very critical of, of the idea that education is strictly jobs training, but yeah. at the time, that's that's what I understood. Um, and so when I got to college my freshman year, I was just automatically placed into some intro classes that included introduction to sociology and introduction to philosophy. And as I was in those classes, they in both were discussing the kind of things that I was interested in discussing. And it dawned on me that, oh, this is a thing that in college, apparently people talk about in classes. Sure. I had no idea. And so I eventually switched majors. I ended up double majoring in sociology and philosophy and graduating with degrees in both. Um, but it wasn't really until my senior year that I decided to go to graduate school. Um, in some ways, I've been lucky. I, um, I've just sort of kept doing, I, I guess this is, this is very punk rock and anarchist, but I just kind of kept doing whatever I felt like doing. And somehow it has worked out for me. So I'm very lucky in that way. So I majored in sociology and philosophy, but I didn't have that good of a sense of where that would lead me. I just knew that this is what I enjoyed doing. And so my senior year, I was convinced by a few of my professors that I was a really good writer. I was really interested in these topics. I was able to think about these things in a way that fit very well within academia. And I was convinced, you know, you are someone who should consider going to graduate school. Now, at that point, it was a little too late in the year for me to go to graduate school the very next year. So I got a job for a year. I worked as a case manager uh, for HIV and AIDS patients at a place called Mazzoni Center here in Philadelphia. It's one of the oldest LGBT health centers in the country. Um, so I did that for a year, and then I got accepted into a PhD program at Temple University uh, here in Philadelphia. And so when I got to Temple, I still didn't exactly know what graduate school was all about. I know that feeling. I did that two times where I just kind of got <laughs> into you? graduate school and I was guessing what I was doing. It was very confusing. Yeah. Yeah. When you don't have a lot of people in your life who have gone through graduate school before, it is confusing, right? right? Like it's not clear what you're supposed to be doing. Yeah. Um, so I got there just knowing I wanted to keep studying sociology, um, not knowing yet that I would end up studying punk. Although I once looked back at my uh, cover letter to Temple. And I actually mentioned the idea of studying punk in that cover letter, and then it completely slipped my mind. I forgot all about it until nice. years later when I looked at that letter. So uh, apparently I had this idea earlier. So when I got there my first year, I took a qualitative research methods class. And for your listeners who aren't familiar with the social science methodologies, that is 
uh, ultimately, sociology kind of differentiates itself into two different methodological schools. We have quantitative, which is statistics, ultimately, and qualitative, which is interviews and focus groups and observation and, and ethnography and so on. So I'm in this qualitative class, which is my preferred methodology and is the methodology this book is based on. And I was told I had to carry out research methods. I had to actually go interview people. And this made me really nervous. You know, I'm in my first year of grad school and I'm being told you're actually going to have to go out into the world and interview people and create a project. I mm -hmm. wasn't sure how exactly I'd go about doing that. And it made me nervous. And so I eventually thought, well, I go to punk rock shows. I live in West Philly where there's a pretty vibrant punk rock scene. And I'm interested in punk rock and anarchism and the relationship between punk and politics. So maybe I'll just not interview my friends per se, but interview people in this scene, people I have a connection to, people I can find and feel comfortable talking to. And so I did that for that class. I interviewed a handful of people, um, mostly through what we call snowball sampling, which means I kind of started with the people I already knew, friends and so forth, and, and allowed the, the sample to expand from there. Uh, I found that was necessary. I at one point did try things like putting up flyers at local anarchist bookstores and so forth, which did not really get me any results. And I posted on some um, anarchist message boards online. And the only result I got there is being told that I'm probably a cop look, looking to like shut down shows or something. So that did not work out in my favor. So I had to go with snowball sampling because nothing else worked. Um, and so I carried it out for that class, wrote a paper for the class and so on. And after that, I continued with it for the master's portion of my PhD program. I had to write a, uh, ultimately a master's thesis for that. And at that point, it just made sense to keep going with it. And so it became my dissertation. I carried out uh, somewhere around 40 interviews with people in the Philadelphia punk scene. Um, they had to identify with punk and they had to in some way identify as anarchists. Mm -hmm. uh, I did not do anything to police what those labels meant. Um, as long as you said, yes, I, I think of myself somehow relating to these two things, that was it. You, you, could, you could be interviewed. Um, and so I carried that out and successfully defended my dissertation, got my doctorate studying punk rock, which uh, is not something I would have expected at some point in my life. The idea that you could get a doctorate studying punk and anarchy um, is probably surprising to a lot of people, but you can. I love it. Um, I mean, because yeah. that was the scene that I grew up in as well. You know, that was the thing that I cared about more than anything for all of my teenage years was punk rock and seeing as many bands as I possibly yeah. could and being a little part of just the whatever local community I happened to be living in at that time, playing in bands, being with my friends, talking about music, talking about ideas within music. And it just made me feel included in a way that I think will resonate with, you know, any listener based on if they were, especially if they were involved in like a local subculture of, of music of any kind, you know, across genres, it really doesn't matter. Like those, those little communities exist uh, across the musical spectrum, you know? They do. They do. And I think that's a pretty natural human thing. You know, I'm a sociologist. I think humans, we are naturally social creatures. And I think we crave human connection. And our, our subcultures, whether it be punk or metal or hip hop or whatever else, um, these are ways that we build those connections, that we build these little tribes that we put ourselves into. Um, and that, you know, has up and downsides to it. But one of the upsides is that these are really positive experiences for scene members. I love it. Well, let's talk about the book. So I'm, I have the book right here, Ethics, Politics, and Anarcho-Punk Identifications, Punk and Anarchy in Philadelphia. But before we dive into the topic, I love the cover because I'm a big Poison Idea fan. I'm a big Neurosis fan. And I know that you have a story behind the cover of how this came to be. And I'd love to hear you tell it um, for, for any listeners out there. Yeah. So this is kind of a funny story. So um, in the in the book, if for, if anyone has it, there's a collection of pictures in the middle of the book of members of Philadelphia's punk scene, uh, which was taken by um, a woman who who was taking pictures documenting the scene, and then uh, they are I think owned by someone who sort of creates a documentary 
uh, element of the scene. Anyway, so I picked this picture for the cover just because I thought it would look cool in a book cover. Like there's no one's face there, but you see the buttons, you see black clothing, you see studs, you see band patches. It, it kind of gives you a sense of what this all looks like. And so I just picked it not really knowing that much about the picture itself. And then after the book came out, a friend reached out to me and said, hey, you know, that jacket on the cover, that belongs to Sean Sinclair. Nice. He's a friend of mine. Uh, he was in the band uh, Mischief Brew. He's married to my friend Janine. <laughs> I know the guy who is, whose jacket that is, who is apparently on the cover of my book. Uh, and so I reached out to Sean and said, hey, man, I didn't know this, but you're on the cover of my book and I didn't realize it. Uh, so I gave him a copy of the book. I was like, I feel like I used you without your permission here. Ha at least have a copy of the book. Nice. Um, so, yeah, that was that was a funny little turn of events because I did not know it was someone I knew who I was putting on the cover. I love it. Well, um, I want to hear about the the terms in this book. OK, so we have anarcho and we have anarch <laughs> and we have punk. So I have yeah. a I have a decent idea of what this looks like, but, you know, I'd like for you to lay it out for me for our academic audience. Like, how do you tie these two terms together, anarchy mm -hmm. and punk, into getting this term anarcho-punk? I'd like a, a, a definition here as, as straightforwardly as you can give it to me. Sure. I mean, the most straightforward definition I suppose we could offer would be that it is punk music with anarchist themes. Right, that would be the one sentence simplest definition. By anarchist themes, we might think about criticisms of government, criticisms of the state, criticisms of capitalism, opposition to war, opposition to um, misogyny, racism, transphobia, uh, animal rights themes are common, anything like that. So that would be sort of a very quick and simple definition. Now, the term anarcho-punk is best I can, I can find, uh, traces to 1984. And a uh, British musician and journalist by the name of David Tibet sort of accidentally gave, um, gave the genre or subgenre, I suppose, its name in a concert review um, in which he wrote, um, I, I pulled out the quote here, he wrote, a concert that put the final nail in the coffin of plastic pose punk piss featuring four of the five best anarcho-punk bands. And then after the phrase anarcho-punk at that point, he actually wrote, sorry about the label, mm. um, implying that he knew that perhaps the bands themselves would not like being labeled with a, with a name, right? Uh, although obviously it's stuck. We, we still have it today. Yeah. If I remember correctly, I was trying to find before our interview this morning, um, this quote so I could get which bands it was. I could not find the quote uh, other than in my book. But if I remember correctly, some of the bands that were playing at that show were Crass, Dirt, Chumbawamba, and Poison Girls, I think. Okay. Um, I might have that wrong, but I think that's right. And so that's where the name originates. Now, I spent a lot of time in the book talking about the hyphen, right? And I argue that hyphens are an important part of written language, that they both bring two things together, they hold together, right? So anarcho hyphen punk, the hyphen holds together anarcho and punk. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, they also separate. It's not anarcho punk with nothing in between, it's right. anarcho hyphen punk. And so there's this relationship that the hyphen establishes where it is both a joining and a separating at the same time. And I think that raises the question of what is coming together and what's separating there, right? It, it kind of begs the question of what is similar between anarchy and punk rock and what is different between anarchy and punk rock. And I think I spent a lot of the book untangling that question of this similarity and difference. Um, now, if we're thinking about the punk scene, some purists, I think, would claim that anarcho-punk should really only properly reference those bands that existed probably in England between 1979 and 1984. That's sort of the heyday of crass, right? Um, some purists, I'm sure, would make that claim, but I, I don't make that claim. I don't think it's a very useful claim. I think most people in punk rock scenes would use this label more broadly to describe, like I said, any bands that are using these kind of anarchist and radical themes. Um, now, with that being said, throughout the 80s and 90s, 
these kind of political themes become more and more prevalent in punk. Mm-hmm. So they were there was always some element, I think, of rebelliousness to punk, whether we're looking at if we look at the early New York scene bands like the Ramones, right? There's something rebellious, but you no one would really call the Ramones political. There's right. not there's not much politics. And to the degree that there is, they're conflictual politics. Some of them were actually quite conservative. Some of them were Republicans. Yeah. Um, so there's at best conflictual politics and at worst, no real politics. But there is rebellion in the Ramones, I think. But the politics really come after punk spreads to England. Of course, you have like anarchy in the UK through the Sex Pistols, uh, though I think we can we could probably have a pretty vibrant debate about whether the Sex Pistols should be considered a political band or not. But really, especially once you get to Crass um, and some of those bands that were on Crass Records, you get very, very intensely political punk rock. And then throughout the 80s and 90s, this really spreads through punk here in the United States and through the hardcore scene. I mean, you think of bands like Minor Threat, The Dead Kennedys, Bad Religion, Poison Idea, Propagandy, who we've talked about, yep. uh, Born Against, uh, and so on. Um, so these themes become really common. But we probably, probably should not consider all of those bands to be anarchists, right? So like Bad Religion, for example, does not really play with anarchist ideas. They play with politics mm-hmm. and criticism and rebellion, but it seems clear that bad religion is not explicitly anarchist, even if they are on the left. Um, so I think we might want to say that anarcho-punk is distinguished, first of all, by a DIY ethos. I think you pretty much have to be DIY to be considered anarcho-punk, it seems. Uh, and some sort of commitment to social activism or social justice. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of the people in the book that we're talking about emphasize that to be considered anarchist or considered anarcho-punk, you have to be doing something. Um, that wearing the clothing or saying fuck the state, that's nice. But if you're not doing anything, then people might doubt whether that's really the appropriate label to apply to you yeah it's like the sincerity behind it it's like how you there's like varying degrees of sincerity was what i'm hearing yeah i think that's right and i think we can see that if and many of your listeners who have a relationship to a punk scene can probably identify with this in which politics can be literally and figuratively fashion Mm -hmm. um you know you get into punk and you find out that you're supposed to wear a circle A on your T-shirt and you're supposed to say, fuck the state. And you're supposed to have this certain lexicon of radical language that you might put in your songs or have conversations about or write on your jacket or whatever. And for some people like myself, those ideas become central to who the person is. Those mm-hmm. are still my ideas to this day. Those are still my values to this day. But for other people, they might be little more than fashion, right? It's something you wear to show that you are punk, but you might not especially care about the ideas, or at least you might not be especially committed to them. Yeah. And we can see that as, you know, some people in punk scenes move from left wing to right wing ideas, right? Uh, And many of your listeners who are familiar with punk have probably known or heard of people who once were these left-wing people and now are Trump voters or were present on January 6th or whatever else it might be. Mm -hmm. And I think for a lot of people that can be very confusing. They say, well, this person believed in all of these left-wing ideals. How do they become a fascist? And, you know, there's, there's a long answers to that question. There's a long history of people moving from the left to the right. Punk is not unique in that, but I do think there's an interesting question of, well, did people, believe in these ideals or did they espouse the ideals as a kind of fashion um and so i think that that sincerity that you're identifying is an important part of what it means to really commit to an identity like anarcho-punk um and to what it means to to really have that change who you are as opposed to just well this is what i'm doing because it's what's cool but it's not really a commitment Excellent. Well, you know, I'm wondering if you have any other uh, specific bands or anything that you 
as somebody who has studied this genre deeply that you would like to shout out, like imagine, like you've already listed many, but like, I'm wondering if you were to like make like a listener playlist to supplement Mm. the text, what you might direct listeners towards as like a crash course introduction in the themes and topics of what we're doing. You already mentioned crafts a lot, but I'm wondering if you can, you know, just list out some stuff that people should check out. Yeah, absolutely. So I would probably start with a lot of stuff on Crass Records, which of course includes Crass, but also includes Poison Girls, Dirt, Zounds, Mob, Conflict, Oi Poloi, included some early stuff by Anthrax and uh, Millions of Dead Cops or MDC. They go by different things that MDC stands for. Um, and maybe interesting to some of your non-punk listeners, um, also included some of the early work from Chumbawamba. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of your listeners who are not familiar with punk are probably confused, as I say, Chumbawamba, because they're thinking about the down. late 90s. That's right. Yeah. They get knocked down, they get knocked up, they get up again. Nothing, ain't nothing going to keep them down, right? Other than that album, which kept them down for the rest of their careers. But well, uh, Chumbawamba was an early anarchist punk band. And if you listen to their earliest records, which are really good. Very good. Um, really good and really political. Um, and... and they don't sound like what you expect punk to sound like, but early anarcho-punk didn't all sound the same. Um, it's had a lot of experimentation and weirdness to it, which is wonderful. So Chumbawamba, I would include on there. Yeah, I mean, now, I, I was I was listening to their album Anarchy, their album Nevermind that, the Ballots. Like, they have yeah. great stuff. Really good. Really good. Um, Really, really good stuff. And some stuff really ahead of its time. You know, on that album Anarchy, uh, they have that song Homophobia that... They were, you know, writing some pretty radical messages against homophobia at a time when no one else was talking about homophobia. So, mm-hmm. uh, really good stuff. And then I would want to include other bands like uh, Discharge, Conflict, Rudimentary Peni, maybe The Exploited, Subhumans, House Rotten. I would definitely include Propagandy, yep. as you and I have talked about. Um, some of the earlier work by Against Me. Yeah. who have gotten pretty famous now, but were definitely part of the anarchist scenes in their, in their earlier days. Uh, Leftover Crack, uh, Reagan Youth, Against All Authority, The Crucifix. And then I'd say find bands in your hometown. Um, so, you know, I can list all these bands. And for your fans who are familiar with punk, I probably have listed a lot of bands that they're already aware of. Um, but if you live near a punk scene, then I guarantee there are DIY bands with interests in anarchism and politics in, in your town. Um, so, you know, when I think about the bands that I grew up with who helped introduce me to these ideas, I think of bands like Rambo from Philly, uh, The Great Clearing Off, Mischief Brew, uh, Virginia Black Lung, The Sound of Failure, Witch Hunt. Uh, more contemporarily, there's a band that... Um, I, I may come up again, but I would recommend every listen to called Hears, H-I-R-S, um, who are f- this amazing kind of like noisy grind punk kind of band fronted by a trans woman named Jenna Pup, um, who are, I think, one of the best bands in Philly right now and have been for a while. Um, so I probably include all that kind of stuff on there, really trying to get a wide stretch covering from the earliest days of anarcho-punk, beginning with Crass Records through more contemporary stuff working your way through the 80s and 90s and so on. Awesome. You know, I, I was looking at the title here and the the last term in your title here is identifications, punk identifications. And yeah. that caught my eye cuz like we live in a period of time when self-identifying information matters a lot and identities being discussed in new ways all of the time in the society that we live in. And I'm wondering if you can talk to me about your choice of identifications versus identity and what kind of sets those terms apart and how your process and decision went into making that title. Yeah. um, It's probably worth noting that I don't love the title of my book. Um, I don't think it is a catchy title. I don't think it's the kind of title that you see listed somewhere and you automatically go, Oh, I need to check out that book. Um, The title came about Really, the title of the book is what I would have used as a subtitle. And the way it became the title was the publisher, which was Lexington Press, who we'll talk more about when we talk about 
the current status of the book. Um, their idea at the time was that you really wanted a title that would maximize search algorithm results. And so if you read the title of my book, Ethics, Politics, and Anarcho-Punk Identifications, it almost reads as uh, keywords, right? Uh, which was their intention, that they wanted something that when, when someone searches, an al- searches, the algorithms pull up the words. Sure. Uh, which makes a certain kind of sense in the modern era. But it doesn't make for the best book title. Right. Frankly, right. Um, so I don't love the title of the book. I understand why it is the title. It's not necessarily what I would go with. I'm not sure what I would retitle it yet, but um, it's something I've thought about coming up with a catchier, more interesting title. Anyway, so that, that, that does bring us, though, to this word identification, right? And I spend some time in the book talking about this phrase. And you're right. So I chose identifications rather than identity, right? And this is a theoretical choice. The idea here is to um, express the ways in which our senses of self are, first of all, multiple. So we never just have one identity. You are never just your subculture in punk or your race or your gender or whatever else. Uh, We are always a multitude of things uh, coming together and coming apart in various ways. But it also is really about the ways in which identity and identification is a process. It's a thing we do. It's not just a thing that exists in the world. It's, It's an action that we take. And so if we're thinking about punk, then you might say, okay, punk, how do I do punk, right? Whether it be fashion or, or ideology or music. And so this idea of identification is to take something that is traditionally thought of uh, sort of as a noun, right? A thing that exists in the world, identity, and turn it into an action-oriented verb, right? Identification, a thing you do. Um, and so it, it's a bit in the weeds of theory there, but I think it's an important difference that is underpinning many elements of the book. Uh, because I really do seek in the book to find out how is it people do these identifications and what is it that people do to bring the identifications anarcho and punk together, right? Mm -hmm. So it it really leads me to not say what is anarcho-punk, but to ask the question, what is anarcho-punk for you? How do you bring these identifications together? Uh, How do these things exist in the world for you? rather than, than just saying this is the truth of what it is. Awesome. Okay, cool. Let's dive in a little bit on the text itself. There's a chapter that caught my eye, uh, and the title is The Dynamics of Gender and the Place of Women in the Scene. And right at the start of the chapter is the statement, to put it quite simply, women, genderqueer individuals, transgender individuals, cross-dressers, and others who would eschew the standard Western sex and gender roles and identifications have always been a part of punk rock. And I really want to hear about gender specifically and your chapter and work in chapter six, because um you know, the the perpetual idea that punk is just a giant boys club where uh, there's a lot of language of inclusion, but how it tends to, um, you know, if you look down at the pit, it's a bunch of guys with their shirts off a lot of the times. And I'm wondering if you can talk to me a little bit about this experience of putting together this chapter and because this is just something that I'm super fascinated about because I'm very critical of the boys club idea that punk tends to, you know, be about for, for many years now, my entire life of going to shows. Yeah, I'm very critical of that too. And, uh, you know, I say that recognizing that we are two members of the boys club talking about this. 100%. (laughs) Um, So I, I think I was at pains in that chapter to do two things at once, which was to express that people of multiple genders have always been a part of punk, like you said in, at the very beginning of the chapter, while at the same time recognizing that cisgender men have dominated the scene ideologically and in some cases, but not all quantitatively. And so it's a, it's a hard line to walk between saying, women, gender, queer people, trans people have always been here 
and saying, and men have dominated, right? I don't want to erase the reality of male dominance, and I don't want to erase the reality of the presence of people who are not male. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's sort of something I'm at pains to do throughout the chapter is, is walk that line and, and recognize both. Um, and of course, for your listeners who are interested in punk, they're going to be aware that this has been a conflict in punk for a long time. Mm -hmm. uh, most, most famously, that would manifest through the riot girl scene of the 90s. But it's something that's been a conflict in the scene uh, for a very, very long time. So early punk, in its really very earliest manifestations, did flirt with gender bending. Uh, it had connections to the gay culture. It had connections to BDSM culture. Uh, so, for example, in New York, uh, some of the early punk shows are put on at places like Club 82, which was uh, a drag and trans bar. Uh, it was one of the few public spaces in the age of like 1973, 1974, where punks could really put on their shows. Uh, there was also clubs in New York like um, Mothers, which was a gay bar on 23rd Avenue, where mm -hmm. in around 75 punks would play. Uh, you can look at early bands like um, Wayne County, then becoming Jane County and the Electric Chairs, who um, Jane County, when she first started performing, still identified uh, or was still presenting herself as a man named Wayne County, but she, she is more properly Jane County. It turns out she's a woman. And she was part of that early scene, right? Jane County and the Electric Chairs with this really cool, interesting, weird, queer punk band um, that does not get remembered frequently enough. You know, that there, you don't rarely hear Jane County and the Electric Chairs alongside the Ramones, right? Even though they, they should be there. Um, so these folks are always there. But as, as you probably know, you teach history, if I'm not mistaken, you know. Some, yeah, a little bit. Um, history too often gets, you know, that, that old saying, right? History is written by the victors, right? Sure. And so as the scene transitions, you know, the, the straighter, more masculine, male-dominated bands are the ones that we remember most often. Uh, but of course, women had really important roles in early punk. I mean, Patti Smith was pivotal to inventing the music. Vivian Westwood was essential to designing the early British punk look. Uh, not to mention all the women who were important musicians in the early scene, like Susie Sue of the Banshees, or Joan Jett, or Lydia Lunch, or Polly Styrene of X-Ray Specs, or Ari Up and Viv Albertine, or Debbie Harry, right? There's all these women who have been central to it. So again, women, queer folks, trans folks have always been there, but with the exception of the most famous names like Patti Smith or Joan Jett, a lot of it gets erased from public memory. Um, and a lot of women have pointed out, and I, I mentioned this in the book, that the, the moments of most radical gender uh, criticism of punk in the earliest days was sort of short-lived or at best partial. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, then that in practice, misogyny, transphobia, heteronormativity, and so forth really creeped back in pretty quickly. And this was obviously a part of hardcore in the United States, sure. right? Hardcore becomes so masculine, so male dominated. Uh, maybe most famously here, we can think of the bad brains, homophobic attacks on the big boys. Um, but you can also think of bands like Black Flag, right? Black Flag, probably one of the best, most well-known hardcore bands of all time, um, but certainly very masculine band in so many ways. Um, you can find some of their imagery that is pretty misogynistic from the 80s. You can think of bands like Slip, uh, uh, songs by Black Flag, like Slip It In, that are clearly like slut-shaming, misogynistic right. songs. And so by the 80s with hardcore, you really get this pretty masculine sound, uh, and, and more importantly, pretty masculine ideals and presentation sliding into punk. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah, my introduction to these topics was the two precise things that I can pinpoint. One is the album Less Talk, More Rock by Propagandy. The other is when H2O, the New York punk band, covered Seven Seconds' Not Just Boys Fun 
on their record uh, FTTW, which came out in 1999. So I have two ways that I can tie directly into critique of the quote unquote boys club Mm -hmm. of punk rock. I'm wondering, like, can you tie your interest in this specific topic to a particular time and place? I can. Um, You know, I was already interested, getting interested in politics when I discovered punk, but I have this very specific memory of being at one of my first like DIY punk shows uh, here in West Philadelphia. It was at a uh, house venue. uh, For those of your listeners who aren't as familiar with punk, it's really common in the DIY and anarcho scene to have underground shows. So you're not Mm -hmm. just having shows at uh, just bars or concert venues, but in houses and abandoned properties and warehouses and stuff. And here in West Philadelphia, it's common to have shows in basements. Anyway, so I was at this basement show. Um, If I remember correctly, I think Virginia Blacklung was playing maybe The Great Clearing Off. And I was outside in between bands. I remember standing on the front lawn and there were people on the porch. And some shitty dude on the lawn told a rape joke. Mm. And I just remember hearing someone from the porch yell, yo, we don't fucking do that here. Mm -hmm. And the dude did the usual, I'm just kidding. It's just a joke, blah, 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 boring excuses. And the person was like, I don't care. We don't do that here. And I remember being like, holy shit, that's awesome. Yeah. They actually just shut down that bullshit immediately. Yeah. And it blew me away um, because where I grew up in the suburbs, like no one stood up for that sort of thing. It just, it didn't happen. You just took for granted that misogyny and sexism and other awful things were a normal part of life. And so that's sort of my earliest memory of being like, oh, they're doing something different here. And that something really valuable. Um, and that this stuff that would make someone who's a survivor of sexual assault or might make women who fear sexual assault for good reason, scared or uncomfortable will not be tolerated. Mm-hmm. Um, and then obviously, you know, when we think about bands, you mentioned, you know, propaganda, right? With uh, Let's Talk More Rock, they have the, what's to say, pro-feminist, animal-friendly, gay, positive. Am I missing something? Uh, yeah, there's one other. I can't think off the top of my head. And of course, that's all written around a circle A on the, on the label, right? Um, so it's just this real, is that the one? Anti-fascist, that's the one. Yeah. <laughs> so it's this really bold, like you open this CD and you just have a giant circle A being surrounded by telling you this is what we are. Yeah. Um, and that was like, okay, what does all this mean? Like, right. why is this here? What's this telling me, you know? Um, and then I know if we think about bands I would have been encountering um, when I was first getting into punk, there was a really well-known at the time punk band in Philly, one of the bigger bands at the time called Kill the Man Who Questions. Um, who, if your your listeners are interested, are are were a great band, and and sometimes you can still find their work. They're worth checking out. Um, who had two vocalists? Really, they had a a man and woman both on vocals, and they would write about this stuff. I I mentioned in the book, and I think one of the best examples of this is a, a song called "Coat Rack" by Kill the Man Who Questions, which is talking about. They use the phrase uh, that "hold my stuff" line in the song where they're really talking about the ways in which women in the scene and especially men's girlfriends in the scene are sort of used as a way to buttress one's own authenticity. So a man may go to play in a show or go into the mosh pit and just turn to a girl and say, hold my stuff. Mm -hmm. So he doesn't have to carry his bag or coat on stage. I've seen it hundreds of times. So if, Bye. And, and you'll see it for those of your listeners who read the book, you, you'll you'll see women giving me stories of that happening to them all the time. Yep. And I think to a lot of people at first, that seems innocent. It's just like, oh, but what's wrong with having someone hold your stuff? And objectively, it's like, well, sure. If you go to the bathroom and you want someone to hold your backpack, that's not harmful. But it's 
such a frequent occurrence right. that its effect is that men get to do things women don't. Men get to go into the pit and women don't. Men get to go on stage and women don't. Men get to go to the front of the show and women don't, right? And so hearing songs like that, that are not only saying sexism is wrong, which is you know what a lot of songs will tell us and, and is right, or that you know sexual assault is awful and should be eliminated, but saying that sexism and misogyny work their way into everyday life. Um, that even something as simple as asking someone to hold your stuff can actually be a problem. Um, and that this works its way into romantic relationships and so on. Um, and so I think those sort of ideas, I, I really paid attention to. I, I've always been kind of obsessed with lyrics. Yeah. So I was always someone who was trying to figure out what the band was saying. Um, and of course, I was also listening to bands like Bikini Kill and so forth, and the other Riot Girl bands who were uh, espousing these messages really quite clearly. Um, so I think all of that would have really been my earliest introduction to these ideas. And then I think one of the important messages in the book about this is that identifying as an anarchist or identifying as politically radical in some way or identifying as a feminist or whatever else does not automatically inoculate someone against misogyny, transphobia, racism, or any other form of oppression. That if you say I'm a feminist or you say I'm an anarchist or whatever, you can still do misogynistic and oppressive things. Sure. And that if you stop at the identity label, if you stop at saying, well, I'm an anarchist, so I'm good now. Yeah. Then you're probably not. Well, you know, um, and that, that makes a lot of sense to me, too, because like I I have many personal critiques of myself as a person. Like I find myself being a person who talks a lot about big ideas, but seems to do little. And as much as I desire to, I live under capitalism. I have a ton of bills. I'm a dad. I have several jobs. And I feel like I'm just barely staying sane in my life a lot of the time, which keeps me from pragmatically acting for the betterment of, you know, um, the world in a lot of ways for like the collective good of society. Like I feel very limited in my ability to do that because everything is so overwhelming and I'm so busy just trying to get by. But you talk about pragmatics and political engagement and the ethics of caring in mm -hmm. a scene in a part of the book. And I'm wondering if that, if, if, you know, if that resonates with you, my idea of barely staying sane and being super busy and feeling like I want and need to be a part of a solution, but how I feel stuck in being able to do so. And I feel like the book addresses that really well. Does that make sense? Oh yeah. Uh, I think that is one of the biggest struggles in, in many people's lives who would identify with this book. Yeah. Um, you know, what central to the book is an argument that ethics is pivotal to an anarcho-punk identification, right? Yeah. Uh, that it is really the most important thing that people who identify as anarcho-punk or with anarchism and punk rock together want to do good in the world mm -hmm. and they want to be understood uh, myself included as people who are trying to make the world a better place or at least trying to avoid the things that make the world a worse place mm -hmm. um and there's so many things that make this hard to do um so this comes up repeatedly in the book. So in the chapter on fashion and aesthetics, it comes up in the discussion of many of the awful ways in which our clothing is made, right? In sweatshops and through exploitative practices, we could apply that same lens to, I don't know, probably like my cell phone here, right? I have an iPhone in my hand here, which I know is made under truly horrific conditions. Right. Um, and what a lot of people say is like, I want so badly to do well, to do good. Um, and it is so hard. And part of what makes it so hard and really what is central to the book is the way in which people externalize the blame for, their, for our, own, our own failures. So for example, I might say something like, well, I would love 
to not support a company that treats workers like crap, uh, but I need a phone, right? And so if I say that, what I'm saying is, on the one hand, I want to do well, and it's not my fault that I'm not. It's really the fault of capitalism or corporate America or whatever else, because I'm not really given a choice to have a smartphone that isn't made under horrible conditions. Now, I could choose not to have a phone, but that's pretty difficult in our world. Um, and so as I was thinking about that in the book, I really articulate this through the work of Jean-Paul Sartre, um, who argued that we are ethical creatures because we are free. And I argue in the book that we could just as readily reverse that. If you can argue that you're not free by saying things like, I have no choice, I have to get a phone and they're all made in under awful conditions. Yeah. Then it sort of removes the narrator, in this case, me or whoever else in my book, uh, from ethical culpability. Yeah. So if ethical culpability is rooted in freedom, then a lack of freedom implies a lack of ethical culpability. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one problem people face is just, I want to do good in the world. I want to make the world better. And I want to internalize that goodness, whether that be by going vegetarian or vegan or buying clothing that's not made in sweatshops or whatever else, but also finding that they can't fully live up to their ideal. They yeah. just can't do it. And that contradiction feels like crap for people in many yes. cases. Very. I, it, I mean, that's how I feel about it. Me too. And it, it feels like crap. People are like, I want to do good. And it's so hard or so expensive or so difficult, or I can't find the product that would do it, or I can't afford the product when I can't find it or whatever else that people have to find a way to survive, mm -hmm. right? To stay sane, as you say. Yeah. And one way they do that is they say, well, it's not, it's just not all my fault. Like the world is really hard to navigate and doing good in the world is made more difficult than it should be. Yeah. Um, and so then the other thing that comes from this ethical commitment is that the ethics really trump all else. And so you might logically think, okay, you're an anarchist, so you probably don't vote because voting supports a system of government. It's engagement with a system of government. But almost every single person I interviewed votes, myself included. And on the one hand, most people would say, of course, voting doesn't change the world. It's not, there's nothing revolutionary about voting. But it's something, <laughs> it's just something. And it seems like it will be better for people in need if we have someone in office who supports the continued existence of some minimal welfare state who will do some minimal thing to confront racism or sexism, who will do just something small. And you might say, well, isn't anarchism this revolutionary ideology? Is, is something small really good enough? And the answer is no, of course something small is not good enough. Right. It's absolutely not. But if, if my goal is to do good in the world, then I have to choose the thing that is better than the other thing. Right. And voting for many of the people I interviewed and frankly for myself is better than not doing anything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so I show throughout the book the way in which this ethical commitment and this sense of, as you said, the sense of caring about other people, caring about the world dominates the ethical decision making. Yeah. Um, and so there's this, on the one hand, this ethic of care, as I say. Um, that dominates how people make decisions. And then on the other hand, this externalization of blame that sort of protects the self and protects the individual from having to feel too much overwhelming guilt for existing in the world. Because if we really focus on our everyday lives, we would have to be crippled with guilt because everything we do makes the world a worse place in so many ways. I mean, we're sitting here having this spiral. interview. Yeah. yeah, and you're just gonna spiral out of control. You know, if I start thinking, okay, I'm having this interview on a MacBook that was made under truly horrifying conditions. Uh, we are generating enormous amounts of energy to carry out this interview that's, that's ultimately powered by fossil fuels. That's destroying the earth. Yep. I'm living in a house on land that was stolen through genocide. Yep. 
Oh, and, and all of that is true and all of that's really important. And I can't just sit here being so miserable every day because it's impossible to fix this right now. <laughs> and so I think that's part of what you're saying with like just barely staying sane. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I think about that kind of stuff all the time. And then whenever I, I'm, I've gotten to the point where I'm able to catch myself before I spiral completely in that, but I, it's all of those things are constantly, uh, I'm being reminded of, and it's, it's truly overwhelming, especially as a parent, knowing the, knowing all these things and knowing that, you know, our own thoughtful children are going to discover these things someday for ourselves. And it's like, how much do I tell them? How much do I let them enjoy their early years before like they get completely bummed out. And I'm just wondering like when that will happen, if that will happen, et cetera. And it seems like only a matter of time. And it's like a parenting decision every single day. <sighs> yeah. So yeah, my son, he's only 20 months old, so I haven't had to confront that decision yet, mm -hmm. but I will. Um, yeah. And, you know, I'm not going to not have him know about the world. You know, that's not helpful, but also you don't want to just, tell a three-year-old that the world is ending you know like there's there's got to be i don't know i don't know the right answer uh, i don't either but. i mean i'm sure that listeners out there have a lot of their own interpretations too on what they're doing to like make one decision over another and mm -hmm. uh that's something that we all navigate each and every day um with our money and how we travel and how we walk in the world and who we talk to and who we don't talk to and who we pay attention to and who we don't pay attention to. Mm -hmm. It's it's an endless series of decisions that every human being in this society has to confront. Um, it is. You know, and I'm wondering if we can talk about something boring and logistic, uh, but which is, you know, maybe overly legal and jargon filled. But I'm super curious about this because you mentioned earlier that the status of the book is kind of in flux at the moment. And, you know, in our private correspondence, you mentioned to me that you regained ownership and copyright over the book, which I think is something that's really important nuts and bolts conversation that scholars and writers should know about because people listening may need to do this. And I may need to refer to this conversation to authors in the future who are struggling with that exact same issue. And I'm wondering if you can talk to me about the process of regaining ownership and copyright over the over the book and feel free to get as legalistic and specific as you need because this may become important for for other scholars down the road yeah so this book came out in 2016 um and if any of your listeners have a copy they know it is a hardcover book mm -hmm. um and like a lot of academic books it is expensive yeah so academic books the academic book market is kind of a racket as any yeah. academic listening to this is all too aware. So this book cost when it came out uh, just under $100 to purchase a copy of, which not only is that I, I can't imagine any book really being worth $100, let alone my own, but it's also just as a punk writing a book about anarchism, it just feels gross. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it feels so gross. It's terrible. So I was never comfortable with the price, but as your academic listeners know, when you're a young academic, you got to get that book out. Yeah. And so you do what you have to do, right? <laughs> we were just talking about the compromises we make to survive in this world, right? And, and being willing to do that is one, of, one such compromise, right? I could just put the book out as a zine, but that's not going to get me what I need in my career and so right. on. So, so I accepted it. And it came out at, you know, 95 or $96 or whatever price they were putting it out at. Um, and the idea from the publisher, I think, was really, okay, we want this purchased by academic libraries. We want this purchased by academics. We want it used in classrooms. That's the academic model of publishing. But I all along had a sense that, yeah, sure, this is an academic book. You've read it. It's, there's a lot of theory in this book, right? It is academic, no doubt about it. And I like it that way. But I don't think academics are the only people this book is an audience for. I think punks would be interested in this book. But <laughs> there's not many punks out there who are about to spend $100 on a single book. Yeah. Um, nor should they. 
And so I've always been uncomfortable with that price. And so I always wanted a paperback version of this book to come out that would be at a much more reasonable price point, maybe, you know, $30 at the most, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, less is better, but $30 does not strike me as totally unreasonable. And over the years, I would reach out to the publisher and say, well, can we get a paperback edition of this out? And the problem is that the publisher's view is if it doesn't sell enough copies, we're not going to bother spending the money producing a paperback edition. Whereas my view is, well, it's not selling enough copies because it's too expensive. Right. And so there, there's this conflict there, right? There's this butting of heads where the publisher is saying, you haven't sold X number of copies. The contract clearly states, if you don't sell X copies, we don't put out a paperback edition. And I'm saying, but I'm not selling X copies because it's too expensive in the hardback edition. Yeah. And so after a number of years of that and never selling that, that number of copies, I think it's, I don't know if it's 500, I don't even remember now. But eventually I thought, well, this is never going to happen. Uh, Lexington Press, as good as they were to me, and you know, they put out my book, which I'm very grateful for and was really beneficial to me. It has this beautiful cover, and I'm very happy with this book being out. They're never going to get to putting it out in paperback. And they're not even selling many copies of it anymore. And so it's not beneficial to me because I don't get what I want, which is a paperback cover of this book. And it's not beneficial to them anymore. They're not selling it anymore. No one's buying it. And so in some way that benefited me because it's not like I was coming to Lexington and saying, hey, I know you're making money off of this, but I want you to stop making money and give it to me. Right. Instead, I came to them and said, look, you're not making any money off of this. I want it back yeah. so that I can seek out doing what I want with it. And they were open to that. Um, what I ended up having to do was purchase the backstock of the book from them. They said, we have a certain number of copies left. Um, we'll sell them to you at the author's discount. When, as the author, I, get, I could purchase my own book at a discounted rate. They said, if you purchase all of the backstock at the author's rate with a discount, then we will transfer the copyright back to you. Very cool. So is, that, is, is that the copy that I got? Yeah, yeah. Well, the copy you got is one of these copies I purchased back from them. Awesome. So I ended up spending, I don't know, I think it was somewhere in the vicinity of $500 on back top stock of my own book. Mm -hmm. And that felt good enough to me. You know, $500 is not an amount of money I want to be spending randomly, but it's not insurmountable for sure. me. Um, and for what I really wanted, it was worth $500 to me. So I spent that money and I got, they sent me a bunch of copies of my book. Um, and after that, we signed the paperwork and I reclaimed the copyright. So it's now mine again. I can do what I want with it. Uh, and I'm hoping to find a way to get this book out in paperback. Yeah. Um, I have not yet succeeded in that. I've had some leads, but I'm not there yet. Um, if any of your listeners are publishers and would be interested in that, please, for the love of God, reach out to me. I would really, really like to put this out in paperback. Nice. Um, so that's, that's where I'm at right now. I have the copyright to the book. I really want to see a paperback edition sold as cheaply as possible. Um, and I am, I am working on that. Awesome. Is there, uh, how many copies do you have in your possession if people are interested in maybe purchasing one directly from you? That is a good question. I can, let me look over here how many I have left. Um, cause I've given a few away. I think I have about half a dozen left. Cool. Well, Edward, that is absolutely awesome that you have a couple of copies available for, for anybody out there who may be listening. Um, they can reach out via email, I'd, I'd presume. And, uh, yeah. you can work out a, a little bit of a, a, a transaction detail for anybody who may be interested in getting a copy in uh, one of the last hardback editions. That's really great. I'm curious if you yeah. can say what you're working on next. What is the, uh, what does the future hold for you within this field of study? Yeah. Yeah. So <clears throat> I'm working on a few things uh, beyond the paperback copy. Um, I have a possible book in the works with Temple University Press. Um, I had originally reached out to them about doing a paperback edition of this book, uh, but those conversations have really evolved into 
into being more of a conversation about a new book roughly based on the same research. Mm -hmm. So um, that is a conversation in the works. I also have um, a edited compilation that will be coming out. Uh, I don't know when it's coming out yet. Um, that's still in the works, but it's going to be on really philosophical approaches to punk. So I'm co-editing that with Mike Dines and Matt Grimes of the Punk Scholars Network. Cool. Um, for anyone who doesn't know what they are, they publish a, the Punk Scholars Network publishes a journal called Punk and Post-Punk of academic research on punk rock. Uh, they are both located in England. I met them at um, a conference that I went to over there that was a joint conference of the Punk Scholars Network and the International Metal Studies Association, um, which was awesome. <laughs> and so I went to that and met them there. And now we're working on this book uh, on punk and philosophy that we have all of the abstracts for and so forth. And are, we're hoping to have the chapters to us in early fall, uh, at which point we'll be starting to put the book together. So I, I hope that'll come out sometime next year. Um, so those are some books on punk I'm working on right now. Um, I also publish articles on sociological theory, uh, especially on um, Deleuzean approaches to identification. Um, and I do a lot of applying uh, theories of identification, especially from a Deleuzean lens to things like race, gender, sexuality, and so on. Wonderful. Well, uh, Edward, this has been a wonderful chat. I've loved having you here for this hour to chat about the book, Ethics, Politics, and Anarcho-Punk Identifications, Punk and Anarchy in Philadelphia. I'm excited to you know, watch your journey as you, get, as you uh, work on getting the book re-released in the world in paperback. Uh, where can people find you, maybe some other platforms for the book or anything like that if they want to get in touch or possibly see what you've got going on? Sure. Um, so if people want to email me, they can through my work email address at Mercer County Community College. Uh, that email address is Avery E, A-V-E-R-Y-E at M-C-C-C dot E-D-U. Uh, people can also reach out to me on Instagram where I have uh, an Instagram handle at Dr. Avery Natal. That's D-R-A-V-E-R-Y-N-A-T-A-L-E on Instagram. Um, I'm happy to receive emails or personal messages. Um, so yeah, if people, I would love for people to reach out. I'm always happy to talk about the book. If people want a copy of it, if people want um, article length versions of it, I have plenty of things I'm always happy to share. So people are more than welcome to reach out to me. Wonderful. Well, Dr. Edward Avery Natal, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. <laughs>